Hello, welcome to Shell October, a most irregular podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by a brand new guest who hasn't been on before because last year I did five episodes with two people, four of which involved the same person. <laughs> but I have I have a wider pool of guests now because I'm being joined by Jackson Eflin. Hello, Jackson. Hi, I'm Jackson. <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming on. Uh, why don't you tell folks who you are and specifically why i've requested your assistance today hi so i'm jackson i do a podcast with my friend mike where we're watching the um sherlock holmes series from the granada television broadcasting people uh i know their company name um that's from the 80s and 90s and we do a kind of watch along read along uh we're about four episodes in right now so we're so if you haven't heard of us that's probably why um yeah uh and I know very little about Sherlock Holmes. My friend Mike is a huge fan, so he's sort of like Jackson. Jackson, do this with me. I'm like, all right, fine. What we'll do? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. I'm planning. I'm. I'm going to be talking to Mike next episode. And the reason that I didn't get both of you on the same episode is I kind of wanted to interrogate the sort of disparity in power level that mm, you sure. have vis-a-vis um, Sherlock Holmes familiarity. Right. Because. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I've uh, listened to all of A Study in Granada now. I can officially declare it my new favourite podcast. Uh, I listen to all four episodes in one go that there are. Um, the thing is, it's um, it's hosted on Google Play Music or something like that. And uh, according to my research, um, that's only available in the US and Canada. <laughs> so I had to go into Mike's... I had to slide into Mike's DMs on Twitter and be like... Could you maybe send me your podcast to Dropbox, please? So I'm I'm enjoying a study in Granada in a kind of bootleg underground podcast kind of way. Oh, it's it's punk rock that way. <laughs> yeah, I had to set up a kind of like podcast speakeasy with Jackson's co-host, who was nothing if not lovely and helpful, uh, and who I'll be talking to um, next episode, and we'll probably be getting into a lot of arguments with vis-a-vis opinions that I've already heard him express about Sherlock Holmes that I disagree with. Oh, good, good. I'm not going to say I was fuming uh, during parts, but I was certainly sort of pursing my mouth and sort of, hmm. Hmm. (laughs) I was like mentally compiling a list of grievances. Oh, I'm really excited for this now. This sounds great. (laughs) Um, But today um, we're talking to Jackson because uh, in the first episode you mentioned that um, you don't have a great familiarity with Sherlock Holmes beyond sort of the obvious pop culture iterations. Right. Although I'm like slowly going back and like, because, you know, you have the like top five Sherlock's for the podcast. I've been going back like, hmm, what do I know? And like finding <laughs> bits and pieces and like hidden gems that I've run into. If you listen to any of last year's, you'll know that what there was an episode where me and my co-host Christy uh, listed off sort of top five Sherlock Holmes things and um, uh, I did get a, a DM from Mike who's saying, what's your criteria for a thing? And it's like, has it got Sherlock Holmes in it? Then it's a thing. That that one Ace Attorney game that they won't release outside of Japan that has Sherlock Holmes in it, that would count. Well, that's a thing? Like that. Oh yeah, they did... Um, uh, Gyakuten Saiban is the uh, Japanese name of Ace Attorney, and they released a game called Dai Gyakuten Saiban, um, which is set in the Meiji era, so it roughly corresponds to what in in the UK we would think of as the Victorian era mm. uh, about Phoenix Wright's ancestor, uh, <laughs> who was also a lawyer, and he meets a, like st- he meet like over the course of one of the cases he meets like Sherlock Holmes, who's like steampunk Sherlock Holmes because he's wearing a deerstalker, but the deerstalker's got goggles on it, <laughs> which is ha- which which is how you know that it's steampunk because it's either gears or goggles. That's how you know, or occasionally. A vape shaped like a penny farthing bicycle. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the category for Sherlock Holmes things is very broad. Mm. So uh, I asked Jackson if they could tell me what their top five Sherlock Holmes things are, because I was, because right, everyone that I've spoken to thus far on Sherlocktober, and everyone that I'm planning to speak to for the rest of this year is kind of a big Sherlock Holmes nerd I think is probably the most diplomatic way of phrasing that. Yeah, sure. 
I feel like there probably must be, like, a name for the fandom by now. Like, I mean, you have, like, Trekkies and shit, like... Uh, in, in the US, the fandom is referred to as Sherlockians, and mm, um, like a lot that. of that is to do with, like, cosplay and, and you know, various things. Whereas uh, in the U- in the UK, we have Holmesians, who are much more mm. scholarly, and, you know, the, the Reader's Digest released a series of um, books called The World's Best Reading, which are these really nice uh, leather-bound editions of, like, quote-unquote, the classic. So I've got, like... The Winter, the Willows, and the Jungle Books, and Around the World in Eighty Days, nice. and they released some Sherlock Holmes, and each of them had like a little introduction. And one of the introductions for the, one of the Sherlock Holmes volumes was about sort of the disparity between US and UK Sherlock Holmes <laughs> fandom. And um, the person pointed out like they were talking to a UK Sherlock Holmes scholar at one of their like fancy dinners that they have because it's all kind of like you know we're all just like it's all you know european and masonic and stuff like that kind of posh they said that you know that they went to an american thing once and they were shocked at all the people sort of dressed as characters from sherlock holmes whereas at at one point like someone came to a dinner wearing a bow tie that had deer stalkers on it and people (laughs) were scandalized (laughs) i can i can only assume that the man was ritually flogged (laughs) for his transgression That's exactly what I imagine UK homeless scholars to be like, though. So that tracks. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of old white men, right? Um, usually attached to some university or other, like a barnacle. <laughs> you know, they're holding that chair until they die, and possibly for some time after. Sorry, I'm drifting. <laughs> so, uh, Jackson, would you please, for the love of God, tell me? Your top five Sherlock Holmes things. I need to know or I will possibly expire. Right. Um, so, these are in no particular order because I, I, I'm I not that organized. Um, <laughs> one of them is, I, I've been like, I only got it recently, so I'm kind of in the, the honeymoon phase of it. Uh, it's called A Study in Charlotte, which is about Sherlock and Watson's great-great-grandchildren who go to a boarding school in America. Uh, and solve crimes, and uh, shockingly, the grandchildren of Moriarty are the bad guys. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, it's a YA. It has like all the YA tropes, and it's like, hmm, how can we make it Sherlock Holmes? Like, uh, well, they the apartment is um, four forty two B, and that sort of thing. <laughs> One of the things that we've um, touched on both last year and this year is. Uh, there's another series called the Lady Sherlock series by Sherry Thomas. Mm. And uh, the first book in that series is called A Study in Scarlet Women. <laughs> the, na- the main character's name is Charlotte Holmes because it's Sherlock Holmes, but lady. Right. Um, and like when I was reading the book, I was like, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why they didn't call this A Study in Charlotte. That would have been such a cool title. And then afterwards I went on the internet and like one of the thing, you know, because like, I, I told Amazon that I owned this book. And Amazon was like, what about this book? And it was A Study in Charlotte. And I'm like, ah, that's probably why. Hmm. So I've, I've kind of had my eye on this uh, for a while. It's been sort of within my orbit. So I would like to know more, please. Yeah. Click. I'm I'm doing the like Wikipedia rabbit hole follow through. Mm, sure. It's kind of exactly what you'd expect from a modern day YA book about Sherlock Holmes' grandchildren to be. Um, it has like, kind of that like standard YA uh, writing style, plot pacing, that kind of thing. Um, the Watson descendant is like has anger issues and is like channels it through rugby, which is an odd choice. But there you go. See, I'm thinking about every woman that I've known who's played rugby, and that doesn't seem like quite an odd choice. Right, but like, see, like Watson is uh, is still like a is still a man in this one. I think. Um, oh, yeah. It's written in first person, and so and the author is a lady, and so. I just kind of assumed that, like, the Watson Senate was still a lady, so that, so that the, like, burgeoning romance between um, the Charlotte and the Watson, between Charlotte and Watson? What's his name? Yeah. Is it Jamie? Sure, that sounds right. Yeah, Jamie Watson, yeah. Um, so, for a while I thought, it was like, yay, lesbian love interest things, but then it was like, <laughs> oh no, you're, you're a man, that's fine, that's fine, I guess. My interest is flagging. <laughs> right? Um, but please continue. Uh... There's some jackass at this, you know, 
private boarding school that has all the drugs and gambling that you expect people to get up to at private boarding schools in Massachusetts or whatever, and someone who the Watson analog hates is is murdered and he's like accused of the crime and he has to clear his own name with Charlotte's help and she has like a secret lab set up in a in a disused science closet and stuff. And like apparently all the Sherlock children are just like trained from infancy to be master detectives and know eighteen languages and you know, judo or whatever. <laughs> It's very tropey, but it's kind of exactly what I... Like, if it was any less tropey, it wouldn't be fun. Yeah, it's kind of... With, with that kind of setup, you kind of want it to lean into as many tropes as possible. As hard as possible. Right, like, I kind of wish it went further, honestly. But it... I'm not sure how it could without being an open parody. And it's at least trying to be a relatively serious story. Like, it, um, like with growth and arcs and all that bullshit. <laughs> like you said, it's a YA novel. Right. I don't know if there are more of them. Um, I haven't looked into it that deeply. I think there are. Mm, okay. Fairly certain there's at least one more. Right. Oh, oh, they burn through the like Moriarty descendant plotline, so I'm not sure who else they're going to get. Like the um, descendants of the Strait or whatever. Um. <laughs> uh, well, there's 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 plenty of because um, that's because that's the thing. It, it's kind of weird to lead with Moriarty because Moriarty is sort of seen as the like mimetic nemesis of Sherlock Holmes although as uh, we discussed in the previous episode with my friend Becca um, the, the the previous episode that's just gone up um, Sherlock Holmes is actually more antagonistic to uh, a character called Charles Augustus Milverton who you won't have met yet mm. um, so he's kind of who like who Sherlock Holmes would see as his nemesis, because he's a blackmailer, and there's nothing that Sherlock Holmes hates more than a blackmailer. Alright. And uh, Moriarty... So it, it seems like weird to leave with Moriarty, but at the same time, like, I do understand... If you're doing Sherlock Holmes, you kind of do want to do Moriarty, because those are, you, you know, the, the the game pieces that people think of in a Sherlock Holmes story. It's Sherlock Holmes versus Professor Moriarty. And right. then you sort of pick them up and bash them together and hope that a story falls out. Pretty much. It's kind of like the thing from every comic book origin story movie where <laughs> the the bad guy is always um, the protagonist, but like slightly bigger in some way. Like how Venom's uh, uh, first antagonist is Riot, and uh, Iron Man's first guy is Ironmonger. Moriarty is Sherlock Holmes, but like slightly bigger and eviler. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting like aspect to the dynamic that is either sort of not touched on enough or made the focus because there's at least one book that I know of that um, is basically a Sherlock Holmes perspective flip, which is about Moriarty Ooh. being the being the Sherlock Holmes to um, Sebastian Moran's Watson, and you know, and they basically they are like the evil mirror version of. Uh, homes of Watson because like they live on Conduit Street and they live in a brothel and awesome. you know their analog to Mrs Hudson is the is the is the madam and Moriarty has uh, a group of children in his employ called the Conduit Street Comanche who are oh. like the evil Baker Street irregulars. <laughs> That's so good. You know they're just you know preteen murderers <laughs> and. Um, it's written by Kim Newman, who's uh, one of my favourite authors. Who's he? Who has written a lot of sort of Victorian past. His most famous series is uh, Anno Dracula, oh, which nice. is um, what if Dracula won in his own book, married Queen Victoria, and then all the vampires come out in Europe, basically sort of head for London, and vampirism becomes like the hot new trend. And it's it's one of those like massively multiplayer crossovers where. You know that like the one of the first characters you meet in the book is Lestrade, and he has become a vampire. And he mentions that <laughs> Sherlock Holmes is currently in a constant. Sherlock Holmes has been put in a concentration camp by Dracula. It's that kind of book, <laughs> and it only gets wilder from there. My ex read those and like would like just give me bits of details about them without like the context and. I was always like, you're making this up at this point, aren't you? Like, surely, surely. <laughs> I feel like Anno Dracula is what um, Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen could have been if Alan Moore weren't so Alan Moore. Yeah, that's... I think I have 
possibly literally use those exact words to describe <laughs> it to someone in the past. I think because it's prose, it's a bit, you know, Kim Newman can do a bit more with like suggestion or like evocation. Like one character that has a bit part in the first book is uh, Lestat de Lincourt from Anne Rice's novels. Mm. Uh, and what happens to him is he gets impaled and then complains about the damage to his waistcoat. Um, but uh, Anne Rice, being as litigious as she is, he's not named. It's but you know if you if you've read the books, you know who it is. Mm. Like uh, at one point, um, a character name drops Prince Mamawalde, and I was like, I know that name. Where do I know that name from? And I googled it, and that's Blackula. So oh my god! That that's like um, there's an extended reference because uh, kim newman's a film critic that's his day job mm. there's an extended reference to a chinese vampire film called mr vampire mm, yeah. um which like kim newman said that he put in the book even though he knew like three people in his audience would have seen it and he was probably friends with all of them <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like this one's just for my, my pals um but yeah so he he wrote um a perspective flip like about moriarty and it's the same kind of like they're they are like consulting criminals where like other criminals come to them um there is there's one that i really like but at the same time it does one of the things that i don't like in sherlock holmes fiction because it concerns irene adler Mm. and as i know that um you and mike sort of talked about in uh, because you covered the episode and the story a scandal in bohemia yeah irene adler kind of didn't do anything wrong no like like literally all she did was maybe have less than ideal taste in men fantastic mustaches notwithstanding <laughs> right which i assume he didn't have that good of a mustache in the past and he just imagined himself having that mustache that's his <laughs> um that's his post-breakup mustache it's like a a rebound mustache <laughs> it's like i had a mustache when we were together maybe if i do more mustache <laughs> we'll get together again that's what it was it was the mustache you know, i kind of think that it could that must have been at least part of it because the guy's personality wasn't that attractive. No, I really, I like the idea of the story of this woman who's being like hounded by this guy for just being a really cool lady. And, um, (laughs) I'm, I am now frustrated with all adaptions where she's like the scarlet woman who does all the crime and, and death sex things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, when she gets positioned as Sherlock Holmes's Catwoman. Yeah. The story that Kim Newman wrote, it's kind of like, she's not sort of an outright criminal, but she has like one foot in the criminal world. Right, and, of course. Um, she's helping Moriarty and Moran with this plan that they've got going, um, which is also a crossover with characters from The Prisoner of Zender. <laughs> of course it is. Again, Kim Newman is that kind of writer. I mean, the name of the book is named after one of the cases, which is The Hound of the Durbervilles, which is <sighs> Test of the Durbervilles, but there's a dog. Ooh. Um, there's one story which evokes like War of the Worlds because Kim Newman's a big nerd so I I get why sort of the inclusion of Moriarty because Moriarty is a very fascinating like character it's it's you know it's difficult to make Moriarty boring right uh, although it has been it has been done are we thinking of the same uh, Sherlock Holmes adaption from the BBC we possibly are <laughs> How do you make him a giggling gay supervillain and not make it interesting? I have some thoughts on that. Actually, well, that is technically my second like favorite Sherlock Holmes thing does come from uh, the Irene Adler episode of that show. Um, broadly, the BBC Sherlock is you know only okay to not great, um, <laughs> but there's one bit in the Irene Adler episode where uh, Sherlock and uh, Mycroft are in the morgue talking and like looking out at the snow and Sherlock is kind of contemplating his awareness that he has a hard time connecting to people, but kind of seems like he really wishes he was better at it. And Mycroft is uninterested in any of that and kind of dismissive of the whole concept of feelings. And that one scene I think is a really good look at like the character of Sherlock Holmes. Cause I think it's just, it's kind of, cool that he's someone who wants to be better but he knows that he can't and that's that's fun to me there's a bit in the copper beaches where and this is in the episode and the story where sherlock is looking out at the countryside and watson's going oh how lovely the the country the nice rolling fields of england the pleasant farms and all that jazz and sherlock is like hmm 
where you see Pleasant Farms, I only see crime. Crime that cannot <laughs> be stopped by the police. They're too far in the fields. That's a really good like Sherlock and Watson dynamic, and I think that one moment from BBC <laughs> Sherlock captures that really well. Yeah, you do get the impression that if he could have got away with it, Sherlock Holmes would have done like the Batman thing of like brooding on cornices and talking about how his his city was sick and only he had the cure. And I think he definitely does that, but he does it inside because he doesn't like he he's smarter than Bruce Wayne and knows that you don't have to be cold to brood. You can brood inside in front of the fire <laughs> with the coat on. One one can brood over a nice cup of tea, it must be said. Yeah, I, I brood over my Twitter. Like, what's... <laughs> With regards to Holmes and the appreciation or not of nature, um, you and Mike, in the your episode on the Naval Treaty, I think it was the Naval Treaty, yeah. I talked about there's the, the famous speech that Holmes does about how the existence of flowers proves the existence of God, or at least some kind of benevolent higher power, because the the aroma uh, like the scent and color of flowers are extras mm-hmm. and it, it's only benevolence that grants extras right. and what's up with that do you know what i don't know for a fact but i have a hypothesis which mm. is conan doyle thought this thing about flowers and thought that's a really good speech i'm gonna put that in something and then realized that if he put it in one of his like historical novels like the the brigadier gerard series no one would ever read it so he was like fine i'll just make sure i go and say it what it was is conan doyle thought of a thing that he liked and he wanted people to see it so he put it in his most popular thing so people would have to see it that makes sense that's that's what we call the doyleist view mm. uh the watsonian view is that holmes was high as a fucking kite <laughs> i like that one better <laughs> The idea that Sherlock is like constantly high and is only barely holding it in and fails sometimes makes the stories a lot more fun. A lot of his like dramatic because also also in the episode for the Naval Treaty, uh, you and Mike talked about his uh, his flair for the dramatic, mm. um, which I think is how he puts it. A lot of those make sense if you consider that he's tripping balls the entire time, right? <laughs> and I like that the flair for the dramatic often leads him to make things worse because he's like <laughs> like I could solve this right now or I could wait in this like bank vault and catch you red handed coming out of a coming out of the tunnel you dug in front of the bank vault manager <laughs> who was rude to me one time. And maybe Watson will get shot, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. That's um, what he's here for. <laughs> uh, Watson has many fine qualities, the absorption of bullets <laughs> chief among them. Um <laughs> Um, ever since ever since he got shot in Afghanistan, they sort of migrate to him. Um, <laughs> like sort of really weird magnetism. <laughs> like we'll seek like. Um, <laughs> there is presumably a bit of bullet still in Watson somewhere. We don't know where because one of the like famous things in the stories is that Watson is frequently forgetful about things such as where he was wounded in Afghanistan, the number of children he has, and his own name. Um... <laughs> But then, you know, he, he had the sort of dual challenges of being both a practicing physician and friends with Sherlock Holmes, so. Okay, I'm, I know that the stories are selective, they only tell, like, bits of Watson's life, I mean, you're not going to go into his medical bits because he's, uh, he's, the Sherlock Holmes story is not Watson's medical journal, but does he ever actually practice medicine? I feel like that doesn't happen very much. He, he must put in, like, a solid half hour a week at his practice. <laughs> I guess. Dr. Watson, I've got a cough. Here, drink drink this pint of cocaine and call me in the morning if you're still alive. And they never do, so they don't have to more hours. Yeah, the, there's a great tweet, and I can't remember who it's by, but someone, someone, um, there's, there's an iconic tweet by someone where they say, being an old-timey doctor would have been great. Just go, yeah, you got ghost in your blood, you should do cocaine about it. <laughs> yes, I've seen that one. Yeah, that was you know, it, like Watson's like medical practice would probably be quite easy if it like if all he had to do was turn up and like here's here's a quart of heroin, see if the problem sorts itself out. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of like any occasion where like we do see Watson at his practice, and the only the only one I can think of is when the like the only time I can think of that Watson is actually depicted as practicing medicine is is in a story where he his patient turns out to be Holmes in disguise who is trolling him. 
in the cruelest way imaginable. Because this is how this is how Sherlock Holmes chooses to uh, sort of reveal to his best friend John Watson that he is not in fact dead, is to turn up at Watson's practice pretending to be a bookseller, and like and while Watson is ministering to him, Watson turns around and he turns back and it's Sherlock Holmes and Watson faints because of fucking course he does. <laughs> That again, that's his flair for the dramatic causing problems. <laughs> to be fair, that's exactly what I would do. <laughs> oh, let's let's be honest. There's no point faking your own death if you're not going to do stuff like that. Right. So a while back, I went on on vacation to Germany, Scotland, like just backpacking that kind of thing. But I didn't tell my roommate. I just sort of left a note on the door that said "Gone to England back and back before Thanksgiving." <laughs> um, I didn't notice for a few days. I was like, oh, Jackson's just been in their room for a while or whatever. <laughs> they started like posting selfies from mountains. They're like, oh, wait, Jackson's gone. What? They didn't have that mountain in their room the last time I checked. <laughs> so, like, while I acknowledge it's a flaw, I also know that I would do the same thing were I a master detective <laughs> and have this, like, vast knowledge of science, but also not knowing how flowers work. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, that was the thing about Sherlock Holmes. His his like areas of study were very granular. In right. That they often they often involved literally the study of grains and the different types that there are. I'm assuming. He has approximate knowledge of many things. <laughs> yeah, that that that's a fantastic description of him as a character. Right. He's like hyper focused. Like sort of since um being diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum, I've kind of like done the thing that many autistic people do, which is sort of go back and look over things that you're into mm. and just, you know, and sort of spot in the thread. You kind of like notice, um, it's the, th- the same thing like with being transgender. It's like, wow, I sure do like a lot of things that involve bodily transformation. That's weird. Mm. But in terms of, um, the autistic spectrum, it's, you know, it's a bit of a minefield because you, you know, you are presented with the eternal dilemma of do I like trains because of Thomas the Tank Engine or did I like Thomas the Tank Engine because it was about trains? Oh, God. You know, that that's one for, you know, the philosophers. <laughs> but um, I do like the fact that like in Sherlock Holmes, you can sort of see uh, an autistic representation if, if you sort of are of a mind to look for it because he does have what we would term special interests and, you know, hyper-focus. And he, he frequently info-dumps. That's kind of... You know, that's one of his like major character traits is he will just, you know, extemporize at people about his interests at great length. Right. And occasionally that involves murder. Right. Which, I mean, having a special interest be crime is really useful. So, like, it it works out. It's kind of like the the theory that, uh, what's his face, Um, Archer from Archer is... Uh, autistic, but his like special interest is being a super spy. <laughs> well, that that worked out really well. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Has there ever been a, a, an adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that like kind of leans into the uh, autism aspect? Not that I'm aware of. Um, uh, the, the the closest things that I can sort of bring to mind is uh, in BBC Sherlock, he refers to himself as a high functioning sociopath, which is not a thing. No. Um. And is really just sort of it's trading on the language that we use to discuss neurodivergence while also being absolute gibberish. Right. Um, Having no real understanding of it, but wanting to (laughs) seem like you're modern and clever. And, you know, maybe there's a lot of that about, but in BBC Shark. But um, it was it was handled slightly. better. I'm not going to say great, but it was handled slightly better in. Uh, elementary because mm. they in one in one season they introduce a uh, a love interest for Sherlock who is a woman on the autistic spectrum mm. and the way that they depict this woman's autism was was very you know accurate to how autism can be expressed mm. in in a lot of people and you know it was like some really like cool character things like um the she likes cats so Sherlock lends her a first edition of uh, old Possum's book of Practical Cats by T. S. Eliot, huh. and she's she reads it and she's like, I didn't really like it. It was just nonsense, you know. There wasn't enough information about cats, um, <laughs> and it was like that kind of thing. Um, and at one point, Sherlock has a conversation with her where he kind of 
implies that he's neurodivergent, but you know, it it's one of those things they're not going to sort of flat out say it for whatever reason, but he implies that he at least can conceptualize what neurodivergence must be like mm. because of the way that he is where he's very, you know, at this, you know, he's also very like divorced from social norms and mostly sort of by dint of being an asshole, which that's the thing. People, people on the autistic spectrum can be. I, it's all right. I can say this because I am. I'm, I'm both. Of, I'm both of those things. Um, <laughs> people on the autistic spectrum can be assholes, but someone being an asshole on the autistic spectrum is, you know, that's not an excuse. It's an explanation. Right. Um. I think that I would prefer it if they if they actually did lean into if someone sort of examined the the idea of a, of a neurodivergent Sherlock Holmes because mm-hmm. you know he he ticks a lot of the boxes you know this this was before we really understood autism like to be a thing right and you know if if you're gonna do a modern adaptation you, you could you you know you could at least talk about it right and while we're on the subject what's with all what's with all that dressing up um like Sherlock doing all the disguises. Yeah, that's another of his, of his like dramatic things. I don't think it like feeds into any kind, you know, in, into any of the things we've been discussing. But it's just struck me now, sort of thinking back to the description that I gave you of what happens in the Adventure of the Empty House. That's a weird thing to do, even like in Victorian England. And on the one hand, it's exactly what you want from an adventure story, where you want the bit where like the hero dramatically peels off the makeup and is like, "Haha, it was me all along." Um. Like in every Mission Impossible, basically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that that's always it's always it's always really funny to me when they do that in Sherlock Holmes stuff because um, I know that you talked about uh, Jeremy Brett in one episode where his disguise was I think it was a scandal in Bohemia where his disguise mm-hmm. was so convincing you weren't really aware like the viewer wouldn't really be aware that it was Jeremy Brett until like the big reveal. They're in this bind where they want to show off the actor's talents and want you to know they're showing off the <laughs> actor, but they can't. In order to do that, they can't disguise him that thoroughly because I guess no one thought of casting Doug Jones as Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> that would be good, though. Right? Have you ever seen um, Matt Frewer as Sherlock Holmes? I don't think so. <laughs> that That's quite an interesting experience. He was the guy who played uh, Max Headroom. Which was like a TV host, where like they put like rubber prosthetics on his face to make him look artificial. So that's kind of like that was like my perception of him for years. Uh, he was the voice of Panic in Disney's Hercules, which I know you've seen. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There's a frame of reference for you. Uh, he played Sherlock Holmes, and, and those those were an Ameri- those were like an American production, and it leaned very very heavily into like he was pretty much always wearing the Deerstalker. I don't know if it ever showed had a scene of him in the bath but i can only presume that if they had he would have still been wearing the deer stalker that would require sherlock to like not be pretty dressed up a part of the like mystique of sherlock holmes is him like not having a body almost i mean it's more that he's this idea of the proper english gentleman with a coat and a hat and that what is like what's underneath is just mysteries and secrets and crime knowledge there's no like torso or rib cage (laughs) Yeah, you you want you want button his shirt and it's just statistics about shootings. Um, <laughs> Same. <laughs> that's what's always interested me about Sherlock Holmes is because he was outwardly, at least, very much a part of his society. You c- you compare that with probably one of the other most famous detectives in fiction, which is Hercule Poirot, mm. and Poirot's whole thing is the fact that he he does stand out. He he stands out like a whale in a fish tank because. <laughs> <laughs> Poirot realizes that his eccentricity is kind of his armor, and that it leads people to like underestimate him and perhaps be less guarded than they would be around, you know, an English policeman wearing tweed. Right. Because like Agatha Christie is really into the idea of like people who aren't taken seriously being able to observe more than they normally would. Yeah, and Poirot is is that definitely? I mean, for a start, he's foreign to an Englishman. There is no greater eccentricity. Um, <laughs> You know, he even says in one of the books that he can speak perfect idiomatic English, but he chooses not to. Oh, nice. Precisely because it leads people to underestimate him. Mm. And also, I suspect, out of spite, which is something that I can definitely empathise with. Right. Um, whereas, like, Sherlock Holmes, he was, to an extent, able to 
pa- you know, like if if you saw him at the opera, it, it, you'd think nothing of it. It would just be another, you know, another man at the opera, albeit one who looked like Dracula. <laughs> Doyle's more interested in the, this idea that like the mind more than the body. I think Cause he, um, he, like a lot of his characters are people who are just sort of ordinary folks who either do or are sub- subject to crime because of like inner stuff more than external strange i mean like there's some examples i've run into but it's mostly like oh this like old guy or this bank teller or this lady just doing crimes doing crimes or being near a crime right that's that that that's often a thing in in a lot of the sherlock holmes stories someone comes in and was like this weird thing happened to me and sherlock holmes is like that was you were near a crime that's what that was (laughs) there was a there was a crime happening somewhere and you've kind of just been caught in 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 the backwash a crime <laughs> within 25 feet plus five feet per level of you <laughs> the area effect of this crime is such <laughs> do you ever wonder if they just walked into the his consulting room and he's like oh you've been near a crime i can smell it on you you've been within 40 feet of a crime in the last seven days this has kind of stopped being about your favorite sherlock holmes things and i apologize for that oh, no, it's that's kind fine. of turned it's kind of turned into like a brainstorming session for the best Sherlock Holmes story ever. But please, please tell me more of your things. I actually have like one more that I really want to dig into because this is, you know, this to be like super long. So there's like one thing I want to get to eventually, but I do want to like touch on the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock, which is, you know, decent movie. Maybe not that like great as a Sherlock thing, but Sherlock Holmes versus Then They Veiled Alistair Crowley is exactly what I want. And like, if you're going <laughs> to. If you're gonna go like big and splashy with Sherlock, go for like the kind of the Anno Dracula approach of like just the kitchen sink of Victorianism and having this like uh, ostensibly a sorcerer who's also into politics thing was a really fun take. And I think that was a <laughs> that was a good direction for the movie, and I like how it didn't completely reject the idea of some supernatural element to what was going on. Yeah, I've I've seen it. Uh, I'm I like I enjoyed it. It's, it's one of those things. I enjoyed it when I was watching it. But afterwards, it was kind of it, it. It didn't really sort of leave that much of a mark. But there were plenty of things that I like. There should, you know, more Sherlock Holmes stories should have an evil wizard as the bad guy. <laughs> I can't remember. I, I I know I've talked about this on podcasts before. I don't think it was on Sherlocktober, but um, one year I went to uh, Wizard World in Chicago and I stayed with uh, a friend in minneapolis and when i was flying back there was a storm so my flight got delayed you know the, to get back to the uk they said well we could send you to stockholm and you'd have to stay there for the night you could go to frankfurt and it's like i've always wanted to go to frankfurt and stockholm but not under these circumstances so i said have you got anything that will just get me back to the uk like you know if i could get to london and then get a flight to manchester from there and they were like okay well, we'll we can put you on an air india flight and i was like cool great the flight was playing um, on the TV. They were playing uh, uh, Indian TV shows. And one of them was what I thought was kind of supposed to be like a sort of like family sitcom. Because there was like, you know, the dad and the mum and kids and stuff. And I was like, I was, I didn't have headphones, but it was, you know, it was in Hindi anyway. So I wouldn't have been able to understand it even if I had. Sure. But I was watching it and I was, you know, and I was quite enjoying it. Mostly because at that point I was quite sleep deprived. But... I was watching it and then it's like all these like family hijinks like there's a thing where you know the two of the siblings are in a park and uh, a a ruffian accosts them and the sort of like 11 year old sister beats him up and confiscates his trousers oh wow so it's been that kind of like comedy thing and I was like I'm actually really enjoying this and then suddenly it cuts to a basement full of dry ice with an evil wizard talking to a magic <laughs> mirror. And I'm like, okay, that needs to be in more TV shows. <laughs> you know, Mike and Molly versus Voldemort. That's a show that I'd watch. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know it's like jazz up your otherwise, you know, pedestrian TV shows with evil wizards. And you can do the same thing with Sherlock Holmes. And I don't think it's been done enough. That's actually uh, where I wanted to go with my... Uh... This is actually my number one favorite Sherlock Holmes thing. Um, it's, ha- have you heard of, slash talked about, I really hope you haven't, otherwise this is going to take the wind out of my sails, the Mandela of Sherlock Holmes? I have not. Okay, so this is a lot, it's a whole thing. So, when Sherlock Holmes is, like, dead for two years, he mentions he goes to, like, India and hangs out with Lama for a little while. That's all we know in the story canon. 
this is basically expanding on that time period where you know Sherlock Holmes has a wacky adventure in in, uh, in India and in the Himalayas and stuff. But it's also a fan fiction about characters from Rudyard Kipling's novels. <gasps> yeah, um, the author uh, the author is like, Jamian Norbu. Uh, I don't like know much about him, but it's not, it's not like some white guy writing this. It's not like that awful thing. Um, <laughs> it's an aggressively like post-colonial take on things because this guy's like, hmm, I have beef with Kipling. How can I get back at him? I'm gonna colonize Sherlock Holmes, the most English thing. <laughs> This is this is everything I've ever wanted. Yeah, it's so good. Um, and so, uh, in Kim, one of Kipling's novels, uh, he has this character of uh, Hurry Babu, who's this fat surveyor who is uh, also a spy, who's a really fun character, but also gets kind of talked down by the text because Kipling's an awful person. And so, <laughs> this makes him a a real person who existed in in reality and also in the same reality of Sherlock Holmes and makes him more dignified, shows how, like, his goofy affectations were kind of an intentional thing to throw people, kind of like how Perot does. And mm. he's the Watson to Sherlock Holmes uh, in this story. And <sighs> so, yeah. Uh, and so there's, like, this... Com- there's complicated politics with uh, China and Tibet that I don't have strong history on, so I don't know to what how well it handles all that, but it's probably fine. Um, so... Hurry Mukherjee and Sherlock Holmes are going around like solving capers and and murder mysteries in this politically charged climate where there's all this turmoil with South Asian governments and um, foreign powers trying to like make moves in the territories to like maintain colonialism or reassert colonialism or get something out of the conflict or whatever. It's what they call the Great Game. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, played out you know on the Indian on the Indian subcontinent and in obviously in Afghanistan. Right. And, like, the first line of the book is, The great game, good heavens, could anyone think of a more infelicitous and beastly awful expression to describe <laughs> the vital diplomatic activities of ethnological survey? That's always been a thing, you know, in, in British history, is giving sort of offensively quaint names to things. Like, the the periods of, um, you know, violent, like, Irish sectarianism caused by, you know, English rule. And like the division of the country and like and all that stuff, we refer to that as the troubles. <laughs> like having some builders in who got the dimensions of your new kitchen cabinets wrong. That's something that I would refer to as the troubles, not decades of sectarian violence and terrorism. It's fine. It's fine. But it, <laughs> it, it ties in really well with how Sherlock Holmes you know has that like the game is afoot catchphrase, um, mm. and the novel kind of works with that. It explores this idea of what is a game to some people is not to other people. And then it goes bonkers in the third act. Um, in the story, uh, you know, this is right after uh, Sherlock has fled Bavaria or wherever the Reichenbach Falls happened. Um, Switzerland? Switzerland, I believe. Sure, yeah. Norway, whatever. And <laughs> Somewhere they have waterfalls. And there's, like, shadowy things happening, and uh, Colonel Moran is, like, part of the plot and stuff. And then Moriarty shows up, who's not dead, because, and this is where it gets amazing, in the conflict, Sherlock Holmes managed to, like, punch him and, like, jog his memory that was wiped by the Dalai Lama right before Moriarty killed him. <laughs> that Moriarty is actually, like, a powerful <laughs> practitioner of the occult, and he managed to, like, levitate himself just enough to not die on the way down. And now he's reasserting his search for this ancient magical stone of power, which he and Sherlock find in a Indiana Jones temple, and then... Moriarty unlocks his great wizard powers and tries to kill them all with hellfire. But uh, the llamas they've encountered along the way are like, oh, actually, Sherlock, you're you're not Sherlock Holmes. You're actually this high llama of this occult temple who, when Moriarty killed him, performed a technique that transferred his consciousness far across the world to Sherlock Holmes, and that's where he gets all of his deductive powers from. From from these, like, advanced, like, advanced Tibetan practices and stuff. And so... Then Moriarty and Sherlock have a wizard battle. <laughs> Can I get the title of that again? Just one more time, please. Uh, the Mandala of Sherlock Holmes, The Adventures of the Great Detective in India and Tibet by Jamian Norbu. It's amazing. I am literally buying it as we speak. Good. It's so good. When you sort of described it initially, which is like, oh, that's quite cool, because I've read sort of... I have read... Um, there is a book called The Great Game by Laurie R. King, Hmm. which is part of her um, Sherlock Holmes series, the Mary Russell series, hmm. which does take place in India and does feature uh, Kimball O'Hara from 
Roger Kipling's Kim as a yeah. character, albeit one that's, you know, is talked about but not present for most of it. Right. So it sounded like that. But I'm I am so down for Sherlock Holmes having a wizard battle. The the only sort of thing that I can sort of think of that this is reminding me of is there's a book called uh, Jesus and the Eightfold Path by Lavi Tidhar, which nice. uh, obviously obviously in the nativity narrative, Jesus is visited by um, three sages from the east, and this book posits. What if it was Sun Wukong, Sha Wujing, and Zhu Baiji from Journey to the West? Oh my god, yes. And and, and they teach Jesus Kung Fu. It's like, <laughs> sure, why not? Um, there, right. eBay eBay has my money. I will be expecting that book in due course. Good. Um, I, I knew when I asked you to be a guest that my life would be enriched. <laughs> I wasn't quite predicting the extent to which it would be. I kind of feel like I need to repay the favor somewhat. So I am going to recommend some things involving Sherlock Holmes I think you would like. Mm, sure. Let me get uh, something to write on. I'm surrounded by paper that is all used up. Um... <laughs> um, the first one that I've already talked about is uh, the Mary Russell series by Laurie R. King. Uh, it's about uh, a young Jewish-American woman who whose mother was English. Uh, she lost both her parents and she was uh, staying with her aunt in Sussex. Her aunt was probably what like we would recognise as abusive. Mm, right. And uh, one day when she's out walking on the Sussex Downs, she trips over an old man who's painting, who's putting paint spots on bees. Uh, the old man turns out to be not quite so old as she thought. He's in his 50s. And it's Sherlock Holmes uh, in his retirement because he retires to Sussex to keep bees. Well, in one continuity. In, in one con- like in, in the mantle of Sherlock Holmes, he returns to India to complete his occult training. Uh, which I will be uh, forcefully accepting as canon from from this point forward. Good. And it starts off. Uh, it, uh, the first book in the series is called The Beekeeper's Apprentice, and it's all about sort of this this young woman and this old Sherlock Holmes, kind of like in, engaging in a partnership where he sort of undertakes to teach her the business of being a detective. Oh, sure. sure. And it's one of these things. A lot. Uh, one of the main criticisms that it gets is that it's very fan fictiony and you know people level that that most useless of criticisms against it that the main character is a mary sue and first of all i, I like mary sues mm. and you know it's like this young woman oh she's a match for sherlock holmes it's like yes good thank you i'm i'm on board for a young jewish woman who is uh, like a match for sherlock holmes right but it's also like really good character stuff and it's like you get like it's not quite the sherlock holmes of sir arthur conan doyle because he's older Hmm. Uh, at one point he consults on a case about a child that's been abducted and while he's preparing to sort of get ready to go to like you know survey the crime scene and like the various things that he does he's kind of lamenting that he's having to do it it's like the police have run out of ideas the mother's desperate so they they want sherlock holmes to work a miracle like like you know like like a retired gunslinger Mm, yeah and like that, and uh, he has such a really good dynamic with Mary Russell, who's like the main character, and she gets so many good character moments. Like there's a bit where Watson is coming to visit, and she doesn't like Watson because she doesn't like his his she doesn't like his prose because <laughs> mm-hmm. she's read the Sherlock Holmes books and she doesn't like them. She thinks Watson is is a fatuous idiot who's fawning over this man who couldn't possibly be as good as, it, as he's depicted. Mm. Um, and she's also really jealous because Watson obviously has this like extensive history with Holmes and she kind of feels like he's gonna like push her out and you know so she's she's prepared to hate him but then she meets Watson and she has no choice but to love him because he's such a good man oh like, that's the, exactly what I want for my Watson it's good the first thing he says to her when he meets her is, is he thanks her because he says I was so worried that he was gonna die of a of a cocaine overdose because he, you know, because he he's got this damn fool idea of keeping bees in the middle of nowhere. So of course he's going, you know, he was climbing the walls every day, and now he's got you, and you, you know, you've improved his life so much. Like the first thing Watson does is kind of bring, almost like bring her into the little sort of family that he has with Holmes to the to the point where you know she refers to him throughout the books as Uncle John, which Aww. is such a nice thing. It's like it's a, it's really cool, and like they go. You know, like there's like several books, and they span. You know, the world. There's one where they go to Jerusalem, and they go to San Francisco, and they go to India. Mm. It's one of those things where it's a really good series, and it's a really good Sherlock Holmes. The mysteries are really good, and mm. 
Sherlock Holmes in it is a really good character because he you never get the kind of I, th- I think the the phrase that you used in one um, episode of a study in Granada is where he's kind of portrayed as like an all knowing Ubermensch, right? A Mary Sue, like there m- many Sherlock Holmes are Mary Sue, <laughs> but we're okay with it because he's like a he's a pillar of British history. It's cu- it's because he's he's a white man who's clever and he's rude to people, right? That you know that's like his he was the original Doctor Rick and Morty. Um, oh wow! I don't oh. Know what, oh, I do hate I, that. I don't know what that character's name is, but uh, I'm sorry for that. It's Rick and or Morty. Um. <laughs> Another thing, right? I, I'm a big fan of um, of your podcast that you do with your friend Shaggy, uh, mm. the gr- Gratuitous Pausing, mm, yeah. uh, where you're currently doing a Disney bracket. Uh, most of my favorite Disney films aren't on there, which I do have to take as a personal affront. I see where it's coming from, but it's just based on box office because that was the most neutral <laughs> arbiter. Trust me, oh. there's... No reason I would put um, the Jim Carrey Christmas Carol on before uh, <laughs> Princess of the Frog or Treasure Planet. Uh, also, like I'm, I'm not so far gone that I don't realize why you maybe wouldn't include, say, the Black Cauldron. <laughs> I do but, love the Black Cauldron. Um, it's so good. We have vague plans of doing um, like one-off episodes, and Black Cauldron is probably going to be one of them. Splendid. But uh, the, one of the first Disney films that I ever saw was uh the great mouse detective right uh, i don't know if you've seen it i've i have a long time ago but like in the far distant realm before i had like nuance or a high school degree <laughs> so i don't i remember being underwhelmed but that's about it <laughs> i would implore you to watch it again uh if you have time between watching the several disney films that you have to watch and the granada sherlock holmes and the um <laughs> sort of the various things that you watch that i because my sort of interactions with Jackson on Twitter is basically following them with a pen and writing <laughs> down the titles of things that they say they're watching. I, I watched it as a kid and I really liked it, although it did really scare me because I was a wiener. <laughs> uh, I watched it as an adult a few years ago for the first time and it's incredible. Basil is a brilliant character. He is exactly... He, he is the most drama queen Sherlock Holmes iteration that there is good good and the the subtext between him and the villain professor rattigan who is his moriarty voiced by vincent price um <laughs> good is such that like it has been suggested and i believe it that they are kind of like bitter ex-boyfriends mm. like he has like basil has a picture of rattigan on his mantelpiece in baker street make of that what you will so instead of Irina adler's portrait somewhere he has uh the the moriarty equivalent is what you're saying yes yes and it's like (laughs) you kind of get the impression that they did they did date at one point and it and it obviously didn't turn out well because one of them's a criminal mastermind and one of them's a detective right it's that classic angel and a devil thing yeah so if if you ever find yourself with the time i would i think that you know there's there's a lot to enjoy in the great mouse detective not least of which is the really quite pronounced gay subtext between the hero and villain. I, I do love me some gay subtext. <laughs> I, I know that about you. That's, <laughs> that's the thing that I've observed. Um, uh, the last thing is uh, a short story collection called The Improbable Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, um, which is a collection of various stories by various authors. It's You know, that's how an anthology works. Right. Obviously, Holmes's famous maxim was, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Mm. And the kind of ethos of the book is, what if you couldn't eliminate the impossible? I know that I've talked about it before. One of my favorite stories in it uh, is, um, (laughs) scientists in the future kidnap Watson using time travel. Good. And build an exact replica of their rooms in uh, 221B Baker Street. Then they kidnap Sherlock Holmes... And the reason that they kidnapped Watson was because one, they they thought that without a familiar, pre, you know, without a familiar setting and a familiar presence, Sherlock Holmes would go mad. And they also thought Watson was like, because Watson is less of a drama queen, he would he would adapt better to being <laughs> kidnapped by time travelers. An admirable quality. They <laughs> they kidnap Holmes and Watson, and they basically sit Holmes down and plug him plug his brain into the internet. Uh, also, the name of the scientist who's done this is called Mycroft Holmes, just by sheer coincidence. 
uh, except not because he's named after Sherlock's brother. Ah. Um, uh, so they plug Sherlock Holmes's brain into the internet to get him caught up. And they go, <laughs> right, there's this thing called the Fermi Paradox. <laughs> it's like, the universe is big enough to contain lots of life. We've been sending out radio signals for a hundred years. Where are all the aliens? Please find them. So scientists kidnap Sherlock Holmes with a time machine to make him find out where the aliens are. And that's just one story in this collection. Um, there's other things. There's like there's there's a story where Conan Doyle appears as a character, and it's kind of, uh, that story's to do with like a, a crop circle phenomenon, and you know it's like are alien abductions happening? And of course Arthur Conan Doyle, who is like famously like a spiritualist and a, a big believer in sort of that kind of the whole sort of new age stuff before new age happened <laughs> yeah like the the cottingsley fairies mm. and uh he was friends with harry houdini and insisted to harry houdini that harry houdini had magic powers even though harry houdini was like i really don't i can show you how i do it he's like look this is how i this is how i do my escapology this is how i get out of the handcuffs and he's like no but you're actually a wizard um you're a wizard harry is probably something that conan doyle said to harry houdini more than once i'm so sorry but um... well, that definitely happened in history, and I accept that as the only <laughs> historical truth from whence all other history should flow. But uh, I know that um, one thing that came up on an episode of a study in Granada, and I can't remember which one, and I'm really sorry because I just I listened to all four in one go, so they all kind of exist as you know audio meatloaf in my head. Um, <laughs> it's just this one thing. There was discussion about how we get. We hear mention of Sherlock Holmes's failures, but they never get depicted because that wouldn't be an exciting story. Mm. There are some. There is at least one story in this collection which is basically Holmes and Watson see a crime happening. They like see a man being stabbed by himself, and the one who did the stabbing runs into a house and runs into a room and locks the door, and they bust the door down, and the room's empty, and there's no other like methods of egress or ingress that the guy could have fled through and they just kind of go well guess we'll never know <laughs> back to dinner which is like it's such a weird thing in a Sherlock Holmes story but it's also really refreshing because it's like what if you just did you know getting to see Sherlock Holmes's failures is interesting and you and Mike made a really good point in uh, the Granada series them adapting the short stories first and ignoring uh, a study in Scarlet and the Sign of Four, and just starting from the short stories. The first story is a scandal in Bohemia, and that's one where he loses, which is a really weird and also cool and interesting way to start your series. Mm-hmm. Which is, but at, at the same time, it's because like Sherlock Holmes is like so well known. It's like it would have been very unlikely that it was the first Sherlock Holmes thing that someone saw. Right. Although, like, I don't think he doesn't so much lose that one as more he. Um... Like, he still solves it. He still figures everything out. It just happens to be the other person, like, that he also solves the fact that he was on the wrong side of things. Mm. So, like, while it is technically, like, um, he doesn't win, he also doesn't, like, not solve the mystery. Like, I don't think I... I can't think of a time when Sherlock, like, fails to solve a mystery entirely. Like that, um, uh, man with, like, vanishing into the, uh, no methods of egress room. Yeah, that's... You do kind of wonder whether... Conan Doyle was tempted to write a story like that out of spite uh, because he famously disliked Sherlock Holmes. Right. But was like, unfortunately, he's like, he he just wanted people to read his Brigadier Gerard stories, Jackson. Is that so, <laughs> is that so wrong? Uh, yes. How dare you? <laughs> of course it is. Art is only belonging to the masses. How dare you have an opinion, Doyle? There is one more thing that is only kind of vaguely connected to Sherlock Holmes, but mm. I, I, it would be remiss of me not to mention it. Uh, it's going back to Kim Newman. Mm, good. Um, there is a series that he did, because uh, like Anno Dracula's, you know, it's it's like four books and a lot of short stories, but there's this one book of his that I think that you'd really enjoy. Uh, it's called Angels of Music, and it is a oh, phantom... It is a Phantom of the yes. Opera, Charlie's Angels mashup, where the, fa- the phantom is Charlie... The Persian is Bosley, and the angels are Christine Daae, uh, Trilby O'Farrell from Trilby, which is where um, the term Svengali comes from. He was like a hypnotist who could make her an opera singer. It was kind of like a riff on Phantom of the Opera. Mm. And the last one is Irene Adler. Whoa. 
and so it's Charlie's Angels with three um, fictional opera singers and the Phantom of the Opera sort of working behind the scenes. So I think that is that is definitely something that you'd enjoy. Oh man, that is exactly what I want. I'm just gonna kind of put that on the wish list. <laughs> so uh, I reckon that's it. So. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, uh, studying Granada. We are on Google Play. We're trying to get it on iTunes, and we also have a Facebook that we are getting better about updating. Hopefully, so hopefully it'll be more easily found. But I can't make any promises about that. And then also Gratuitous Podly, which is my other podcast, is also about film. And we're looking at the Disney movies, and we're wrapping that up. And I'm really glad. I I love Disney movies, but I'm very excited to not have to watch Lilo and Stitch for at least another year or so. <laughs> Hunchback of Notre Dame lost, so I've I've kind of mentally checked out, but I'm still listening to it. Fair. <laughs> uh, I I love Gratuitous Pause, and um, when I first sort of started listening to it, there was there was quite a few, so I just listened to them like all one after the other mm. while playing video games, and then I ran out. It's like, what do you mean I have to wait for more? <laughs> That's not on. Well, soon nobody will have to wait again because we'll be done with our first bracket. <laughs> um, and uh, I feel that way now about studying Granada. Oh yeah, because. And um, this is a, this is a story that I've told before, but I live in the Granada region because Granada was the name of because like uh, ITV was split up into various like companies. There was HTV, which is Wales in the West Country, there was Grampian, which was Scotland, uh, Yorkshire, Thames, uh, and uh, I live in the Granada region, which produced the Granada Sherlock Holmes. And um, they had a thing you could go on called the Granada Studios tour. So I've actually been to the Baker Street set of um jeremy brett sherlock holmes um they hadn't been making the series for a few years at that point uh to the extent that i was able to go into the set of 221b baker street and buy a baked potato because (laughs) they'd turned it into a cafe (laughs) but they had like the street set and it was you know and like some like horse mannequins (laughs) horsekins is that what they're called and it was like so cool. It's like it, it. It was the first time that I was standing in a place that I'd only seen on the TV, and it was like this. Is I had a bit of a moment. It was quite weird. I was like, I was eight, so I didn't know what like a metaphysical experience was, <laughs> but I was definitely having one. Nice. So I've always felt like a very close connection to the Granada Sherlock Holmes because it was it was my first Sherlock Holmes because mm. I had insomnia when I was a kid, so I watched a lot of grown up TV. Oh, sure. So, and um the you know this year the the show started the year i was born mm. so it, it's kind of like my, I, like many people my kind of default image of sherlock holmes is jeremy brett mm. honestly same like he does a good job <laughs> it's it's what he was born to do uh that and um sing in my fair lady uh so i'm i was i'm so overjoyed to have a study in granada as a thing that i can listen to now it is it is literally my new favorite podcast and Aww. well, you say that now. I am probably going to continue bugging both you and Mike for new episodes. Oh yeah, that's fair. Like a like a Dickensian orphan with my <laughs> nose pressed up against the glass of Google Play Music. I mean, please, sir, I have some podcast. <laughs> um, Good. And my eyes will be so big, and my face will be so grubby, and I'll be wearing a large. Like a, a a tweed cap that's comically large for my head, mm. and you will have no choice but to give in because I'll be so adorable. Mm. So, but until then, uh, thank you so much, Jackson, for for coming on. It, yeah, thanks it, for having me. Jackson is one of my favorite people on Twitter. Whenever they like live tweet a movie, that's that's like appointment viewing for me. <laughs> um, thank you very much. This has been Sherlock October, a most irregular podcast, and. Uh, Join us next episode for the other half of Study in Granada, who I will potentially spend the entire episode just digging out a list of receipts saying, in the episode of the Naval Treaty, you said, and then <laughs> like taking taking Mike to task over the things that he said. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> but uh, until then, the what what's the thing that you say on your show? Oh, uh, from the, the... Uh, rare to meet thy go. I'm stealing that for this episode. Good. The pod- the podcast police will never touch me. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye.